This episode is brought to you in part by Highland Canine LLC. They offer total solutions for law enforcement and military organizations to meet their increasingly demanding canine needs. Connect with them and see the difference at tacticalpolicek9training.com. That's tacticalpolice, the letter K, the number nine, training.com. This episode in part is brought to you by DeminayBiteSuits.com, based in Loveland, Colorado. Be sure to hit them up at DeminayBiteSuits.com, D-E-M-A-N-E-T, BiteSuits.com. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Working Dog Radio again here at Bravo 3 in Las Vegas, put on by Tripwire Operations Group. We're here with Pat Nolan. Uh, everybody will be familiar with Pat from his background with the, the scent tubes and using them for the puppy imprinting and everything else. Um, so, that, Eric, how have we been doing the show so far? Well, the show's been great. Uh, we got a bunch of short interviews and some long interviews with a lot of people that really like the stuff that we got. Um, all kinds of different information coming our way. Uh, we have more people to interview. It's been really good. This is a great for our first time out. I think this Bravo 3 has been pretty nice. It's been Thanks, pretty well cool. done. Yeah, it's been really good. So uh, we got a lot of content out of it, and I think the people really enjoy what they hear. So, Pat, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of your background and then uh, how we got into some training and then we'll kind of start covering some of the puppy imprinting stuff. Okay. Uh, again, my name is Pat Nolan. I have Tactical Directional Canine or TD Canine. And uh, I first started training dogs for hire in 1975. Uh, I like it. <laughs> I, got, I got out of the Army and I was petting a dog. I said, hey, I want to have a dog again now, now that I'm out of the Army. And... <laughs> Folks I was talking to said, oh, go talk to Gary upstairs. He's starting a guard dog company. I was in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I went to talk to Gary, and he was starting a guard dog company, so I started uh, catching dogs the next day. And I fell in love with it. It was scary and exciting and uh, good times. Um, I went from there to uh, Schutzen Sport and did quite a lot of work decoy work with the Greater Washington D.C. Schutzen Group in the 70s, late 70s, I guess, and was looking around trying to figure out a way to make a living training dogs. I was, this sounds like an exaggeration, but I was buying $300 puppies and I drove a $50 car. Um, and uh, so I was trying to figure out, how can I do more of this? How can I get paid to do this? When <clears throat> at a killer seminar, Bill Keeler's seminar in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Mike Jones told me that retrievers were an honest way to make a living training dogs, that they were all in all good dogs, good people. They sent their dogs out for training, and they, they needed trainers. And he was right on all counts. I got a retriever, started reading some books, found out I need to shoot birds to train retrievers, so I, I learned to shoot, and then I fell in love with the hunting and the retrievers. And uh, I spent about 30 years training hunting retrievers and field trial dogs. In the field trial sports, dogs need dogs work off-leash, no collar, 
They have to be under great control at fairly extreme distances. At five and 600 yards, we have to stop them from doing things they want to do, and you have to get them to do things they wouldn't rather do. Uh, very close to distractions at great distances. Very challenging sport. And uh, <clears throat> there's so many delicate balances required there. It can't all be control because you, he doesn't develop his talent. And it can't be the dog just operating as a, you know, a wild beast. He has to be working with you. So I call that uh, operating independently under control. And that's uh, quite, a, quite a balance to keep, to develop his skills and develop control at the same time. And taught me a lot about dogs. Very challenging competition. I loved the dogs and enjoyed it. And uh, as my family was growing, I have now five children and ten grandchildren. But when my fifth child was born, I had been trying to find a way to get off the road as a field trial, a field trial trainer. I was sometimes on the road seven months a year. We'd go south in the winter, go north in the summer, and then run the trials. And uh, it was difficult for my family. And I was working my way to stay home. I was hiring assistants that would run the trials and I'd stay home and train. But it wasn't really just working the way I needed. So I was leaning towards quitting running trials and my wife got pregnant with my fifth child and I decided that was all, all I needed to stay home from field trials. So I stopped running trials. To, went and finished a college degree, got my bachelor's degree. I don't know if I was 45 or older, um, but uh, I was definitely the oldest one walking for a graduate certificate <laughs> that, that day. And spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I could do to earn a living if I wasn't a retriever trainer. So I was experimenting with other training venues. I was looking into obedience programs and I was hired by Dogtra to do some consulting and promotional work for them, so I started doing trick work and kind of ended up with a fairly unique skill set. I could I had learned to do some tricks and things, fine-tuned little things, but also I could work dogs at great distances and it turned out that that skill set was valuable to some of the tactical operations and I started doing work for military. My first project was for the Air Force, and I'm not sure if it was seven, eight years ago, maybe nine. And I have worked for the groups, and it's been a great honor and a privilege to work with special operations groups in the United States and with some of our allies overseas. Uh, I'm able to contribute and give back, and it's, it's a good feeling. I like it. I don't... Uh, I started, the, I do a lot of scent work now, and, and actually, the first time I imprinted a puppy was in 1979. I imprinted a litter of German Shepherd puppies at three weeks. Uh, now, I had read, a, I was, I like to read, and I read books on studying humans to learn about animals, and I read about research on animals, and 
there's uh, a lot. I study trainers. I study methods and processes, and I'm a firm believer that we need to learn the principles that support sound training, not just techniques. If we don't understand the principles of training, we will always be a slave to techniques. And if we understand principles, we're free to choose and try new techniques if the one we're using doesn't work with the dog we have here. Otherwise, we're stuck in a rut. We just, this is the technique, this is the way it's done. We don't even call it a technique. We say, this is how it's done. Why is it done that way? Because this is how it's done. Uh, I'm not dumb enough to think I'm so smart that I know the only way to train a dog or the best way to train a dog. But I do have a reason for everything I do. I have thought it through. And I can tell you why I do everything I do based on principles. Now, you might not like my answer, but I have an answer for everything I do. I've thought it through. Uh, the first time I imprinted a litter of puppies, I was reading a book by Michael J. Fox about puppy development and dog behavior. And he had a statement in there that it was commonly accepted that in the critical periods or I guess they call them uh, sensitive periods or something now. They don't like to call them critical periods, but um, in these critical periods in the puppy's development that the thinking centers of the brain didn't turn on until about 19 or 21 days. And that before that, there was very little that puppies learned, but they did learn odor. And he did an experiment. He took anise oil and put it on a cotton Q-tip and you touch it to puppies. If they've never been had any exposure to it, puppies reflexively draw back away from the anise oil, the smell. We took a litter of puppies and he wiped anise on the mother's breast or on her body near her breast and these puppies nursed on that, on the bitch. When you, when they were 19 days old then you touched the cotton swab to them they pushed forward and rooted into it. They didn't draw back. So it was proof that the puppies had learned an odor before 19 days. Then about 19 or 21 days, the prefrontal sections of the brain turn on. Before that, I think it's just a lizard brain, kind of. And well, I got to thinking if they could learn anise oil, they could learn any oil, any odor, before 19 days. And that deep, deep centers of the brain are processing and recording information before the thinking part happens. If we could make an impression there, that's deep-seated. And then, as soon as they start, you turn on the prefrontal brain, then you just add layer over experience on top of that. Well, I, did, I happened to read the book when I had a litter of German Shepherd puppies, and they were about two and a half or three weeks old. So I didn't do the earliest imprinting with them, and I didn't have permits to hold anything that uh, narcotics or explosives. So I was looking around the house and thinking, and I went to a, like a health food store, and I happened upon dried raspberry leaves. Not that dried raspberry leaves are a substitute for anything, but it was a distinct, unique odor that I could train the pups on that I know I have no dried raspberry leaves in my house except what I bring in there. So now I, I took, at 21 days, I took a plastic bowl. 
You know the bowls that have the center and then it has a skirt around it? Oh, yeah. Right, right. So there? I took a plastic bowl and drilled holes all around the outside. And I took a stocking, and I might not use a stocking today, but this is what I did then. And I packed that stocking full of dried raspberry leaves. And I packed that around the outside of the bowl. And when I started feeding the puppies, I started 21 days, supplementing the mother's nursing. They, every time they approached the bowl, they smelled dry raspberry leaves before they get to the food. And I believed that they were smelling the raspberries while they were eating, but they always smelled it before they got there, or at least it was presented to them before they got there. By the time those puppies were four and a half, five weeks old, if you snuck in their room very quietly with dried raspberry leaves, they would wake up from the odor. You could see their heads come up and they would wake up and they'd root around. And I did, uh, we did, we hide and did hides and searches. And at the time I was eating a lot of yogurt, so I had these yogurt tubs and I put, probably too much yogurt, but I put dried <laughs> raspberry leaves in the yogurt, punch holes in the tops and hide them around. Again, I might not use plastic yogurt tubs today, but was the first time I imprinted a litter of puppies in 1978 or 79 before I ever had a Labrador Retriever. When I started training retrievers, at first the thinking was, before I started, the thinking was let them grow up to their year and then you start training them. And reading and seeing and looking, it was becoming more common to start at younger age, start at six months. And my experience was that they were learning much earlier. So I tried, I started training directional work with puppies and trying to do retrieving work with them. And I quickly found out you can't train a puppy the way you train an adult dog. But I also found out the other way, when I was training my puppies properly, I could train an adult dog the way I trained the puppy. Uh, and if we think about exposure, we're all familiar with socialization and the, the lack of socialization, the effects that come from the lack of socialization. There's this critical period up until, or sensitive period, up until the puppy's about 12 weeks old. And if we spend time in that early period socializing the dog, it pays dividends the rest of his life. If we fail to socialize the dog before 12 weeks, and I think in Clarence Poffenberger's book called The New Knowledge of Dog Behavior, in there I think he said that the guide dog school at the time was doing one or two socialization periods a week from seven to 12 weeks, and that was sufficient. I don't want to be sufficient, I want to exceed the right, minimums. Yeah. So, but I socialize my dog. But if you think of that, seven to 12 weeks, even if it was an hour a week, that's five hours of socialization. And it pays dividends the rest of his life. And if the, conversely, if you don't do that five hours of socialization, you could put five hours a week the rest of his life and never overcome because there's a developmental period there where you need to open pathways in the puppy's brain. And 
we've all seen that shy dog that wasn't socialized. I kind of got to thinking that maybe when we were looking at dogs, no matter how functional they were as training dogs, we were looking at that same thing, that stunted less than they could be because we had not socialized them to their work before they were 12 weeks old. So I started training puppies to do directional work. Break it down into the things they have to do to do a blind retrieve. They have to line to a target. They have to stop and they have to take directions. And I taught all three of those things and I put them together. And I taught there's some of the advanced concepts that retrievers need to know. They need to be able to run tight behind a gun. They need to run tight outside the fall. They have to be able to go past one bird without returning for a second effort there. And what I found was puppies could learn these advanced concepts by eight or nine weeks old. I had trained dogs at two and I struggled to teach them to do multiple marks. You know, you throw two birds down and he has to go get one, bring it and deliver it to hand, then go get the other one. I got to thinking and reading and there's a, there's a developmental, I'm not sure if it's a skill or it's a level or what, uh, it's called object permanence. It's something that happens in the brain of a human about eight or nine months old. Right. Before that, when we play peekaboo with the child, you raise the towel, drop the towel and they laugh and giggle because when you raise the towel and they can't see you, they think you're gone. They don't have object permanence. And so it's quite a shock when the towel falls and they see you again. But somewhere around eight or nine months, the, dog, the child knows you're still there when you raise the towel. So you drop the towel and they don't laugh anymore. It's not funny, it's not a surprise. Experiments have proven, I think being able to do a multiple mark with a dog, part of that, depends on object permanence. He didn't see it directly and directly pursue it. He saw it fall, he has to go do something else and then come back and remember that it's there. I think that's part of object permanence. Studies have shown that object permanence happens in the puppy sometimes around seven weeks old. And when I found that out, I was off to the races. I found you can teach puppies seven, eight, nine weeks old, multiple marks. Now, I've struggled to teach adult dogs to do multiples sometimes, but yet I've never tried to teach a multiple to a puppy that couldn't do it at nine weeks old. Now, lining to multiple treats. I walk him out, put a treat down on an object or a target for him, an objective. Walk him to another one, set a treat down, let him go. He'd run and get the treat off the second objective. Come back, I give him a treat, turn him and face him, and he'd run and eat the first treat. So it's not retrieve but he's learning the mechanical skills and he's learning component skills. Right. Don't go back where you've already been. You can set those up and go tight behind a gun. And I think this early experience then opens pathways in the brain that later experience fills in these paths. When I... Uh, stopped running trials. I started looking into other venues and uh, one of the venues and directions I was looking was some detection projects. And I 
thought back to my early puppy days and then to my early my experience with training retrievers early and so I started doing detection work with puppies <clears throat> oh hold on a second let's talk about Demonate Bite Suits from start to finish you can order a new suit online in like 10 minutes that even includes the time to custom design your own unique suit the days are way gone of having to order packets and snail mail everything back and then you're not sure if they got it so all you have to do is get online your order is sent straight to the kids at DeminayBiteSuits.com. And then once it's confirmed, everything is set up, they send it straight to Demine, making your life much easier and guaranteeing the fastest delivery time. Their online process is catered to giving you guys peace of mind while ensuring the fastest results. Demine offers a solution when it comes to high-quality, durable, professionally-made bite suits. Invest in a Demine bite suit and take pride in having a reliable suit made just for you. That'll never let you down. DeminayBiteSuits.com is operated by Complete Canine Training, LLC, which is Chris and Chelsea. They're based out of Loveland, Colorado. They've been training police canines and protection dogs and family dogs for over 10 years. They have the same passions as you guys, so you know that what you want in a bite suit, they want the same things too. And they're here to help you guys through the process. Feel free to contact them, and they'll be able to help you out and point you in the right direction. Head over to DeminayBiteSuits.com. That is D-E-M. A-N-E-T Bitesuits.com Go over, be sure to use the 10% off of anything you have, you're going to order. The discount code is WORKINGDOGRADIO all one word. They do free shipping. They also do purchase orders for government and, and law enforcement agencies. They also started a new program where they're going to do financing for buy it now, pay later through PayPal. Hit them up. DeminayBitesuits.com this episode is brought to you by Highland Canine Training, LLC. They offer total solutions for law enforcement and military organizations to meet their increasingly demanding canine needs. Connect with them and see the difference. At TacticalPoliceCanineTraining.com, that's TacticalPolice, the letter K, the number 9, training.com. Guys, they're fucking good. Yeah, I'm a crazy motherfucker walking up your street. We're back here at Bravo 3 with uh, Pat Nolan talking about puppy imprinting, and we're going to pick up with some uh, object permanent stuff. So I wanted to do scent work, scent detection work with puppies, and I was trying to think. I wanted to do several things. I was looking for a discrete presentation for the odor. I wanted to start the puppies at... I was buying puppies at the time. I wasn't breeding at the time. So I'd buy my puppies at 49 days. Uh, and I want to start... Typically, it may be silly, but typically I stop on the way home and train on the way home. Yeah. You know? it, it just yeah. It's a thing, you know? And uh, But I don't do the odor work till I get home. But I was trying to start puppies at seven weeks on odor. So I wanted some way to contain odor that... The puppy couldn't get to it and get hurt. Some way that I could present reward to the puppy quickly. And stumbling around in Lowe's, I came up with the uh, water closet floor flange and right. test kit there. And uh, I, I got clean out lids. Now, if you, there's two different types of clean out lids. There's a, a screw top for a clean out tube there. One is raised up so you could grab it like with channel locks, right. and the other is slotted that you can put a screwdriver or a stick in it to screw it out. I like this slotted 
uh, clean-out lid, and I would drill holes around it to let the odor out. So now we have a water closet flange with the test uh, cap on it, and so nothing can fall out the bottom. We screw on the clean-out lid that has this slot in it so nothing can get out the top, the puppy can't get in the top. And for my initial imprinting, I have historically done my imprinting in the vast majority of motor work off-leash. So, I, like I was lining pups to targets, I, I have one, one little tube and I hold the puppy and I let him see me put a piece of food on the tube. Now the food goes in the slot. So when I sit him down, I don't believe he can see the food anymore, but I'm only gonna put food on there a couple times. But I put food on there because I'm trying to, by classically, classical conditioning, as the pup runs up, there's holes drilled in the top. As he runs up, I believe he encounters the odor and right after encountering the, encountering the odor, boom, he gets the reward. So that's about the fastest I can get between odor and reward, odor and reward. The food is right there. After I do that six or eight times, the puppy's really going towards the, here's a pup on the wall right now doing tubes. That was quite some time ago. Um, there's a, uh, I have a video running on the wall. That's what I'm pointing to. We're here at Bravo 3. and part of my booth I have some video running on the wall and there's a puppy doing a detection project and I'm misdirecting that puppy I have food in my hand calling him away from the odor he's 55 days old in that video and I'm calling him with food and he's ignoring me to go away from hot dogs to find odor now there's no food in that odor tube there's only black powder there um, sorry for the interruption that's in your kitchen that's in my well that's not in my kitchen that's in, in what's an office now, or oh, was okay. an office. Yeah. But that's in the house, yeah. <laughs> um, so, by classical condition, the puppy runs up and smells odor and then gets reward. After that happens, five, six times, I don't know, I put a second tube down. The second tube is probably empty the first day, and I put the wrong tube closer to the puppy. He runs up to the wrong tube and smells nothing and gets nothing. Most of them look up and see the next tube and run to it, smell odor and get paid. So then we do the shuffle. Mm -hmm. Typically with a seven week old puppy, by the end of the first day, I'm shuffling four tubes. And by the end of the first day, I have an empty, a distractor, a target odor, and maybe uh, some kind of not interesting distractor. I usually put the reward that I'm using for the dog, for the puppy, I put that in one of the tubes. I want to make it bu abundantly clear that we're not seeking reward, we're seeking target odor. Yeah, you mean the actual food. That's correct. Yeah, okay. yeah I put his food that I feed him daily and also use the type of reward that I'm using right, right. to feed him. So, Once they'll go in and search for tubes, I put the hood over it with a hole in the back to feed. My, ho my hoods are not fastened down, so I don't have the elbow piece on it. I just have the tube. And then I stop putting food in. As soon as you'll go in the tube, typically the second day, and now he has to go in 
pause at the odor, and then I can pay him in the back. Now, I like to pay initially in odor, uh, and that's why I have the hole in the back of the elbow there. But you can pretty quickly move away from that if you, if you do markers and use markers. You can mark and pay them away. I like the tube system and the discrete odor presentations uh, for several reasons. One, the animal is searching off-leash from the very beginning. I introduce distractions from the very beginning. I introduce misdirection from the very beginning. And I want him to know that the only reliable predictor of the availability of reward is target odor. So that's kind of how I started training detection puppies. Yeah, a lot of the stuff, you know, there's, there's people right now are listening going, I don't remember classical conditioning from like eighth grade. I never thought that would ever apply to anything I would do in my life. But uh, you definitely have to uh, read stuff to learn all that, you know, definitely be ahead of it. So I have a question. Uh, I have two questions. Let's go all the way back to the beginning first. Guard dogs, the guard dogs. What breeds were those? Well, we were training primarily shepherd dogs at the time. We trained a Doberman for a custom train, a Doberman for a client. But most of the dogs we were training um, were shepherd dogs, and we were finding dogs. We weren't buying dogs or importing dogs. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're finding and testing dogs. We, we interviewed uh, David Dorn earlier, and, and he was talking about when he first started, it was a lot of Dobermans. And, and I said, when I was a kid, Dobermans were the scariest dogs ever. Like everybody, they're awesome, they're great, but that's what I figured maybe had a couple of those. So <clears throat> when I'm doing police dog training, uh, when I'm showing, when I start a dog on, uh, say, building searches or area searches, not for odor, but for, well, for human odor, to find the guy, I typically do the, the thing where the handler's given the warnings, the decoy steps out of the room, ducks back in, and the handler sends the dog. Now, my theory has always been that the dogs don't see distances like we do. They don't, they don't perceive it like we do because the dogs will, and the guy goes into the room and leaves the door open. The dog will either duck into the room early, the first room, or he'll run right past it. I'm talking a second, two seconds after he's gone. Like they don't see depth perception we do, or is it the whole, the vanishing thing, like you were talking earlier? Um, I don't know if you've ever kind of summed that up or figured that out. I haven't figured it out, but they, I do, I believe from the retriever sports that they have they have some natural ability at depth perception that can be developed and the retrievers because a lot of their their game is not patterned they that you go to the test and the judge looks around the field and he says gee it would be hard to get a bird over there so let's put one there and i don't think the dog is going to want to go over there so let's put one there so there's no pattern to the to the work so sometimes they do long sometimes short sometimes long and short in the same test but they, they so we develop, they act, actively develop depth perception. But you can trick them too. And that straight line down the hallway, and he dick, dip, disappears out of, into a doorway, very difficult for the dog. I've, my experience, mm -hmm. just like yours, very difficult for the dog to pick out which, which door he went in. But yeah, there would be, I, I don't know how many reps you would have to do to... Yeah. Kind of, get, and you know they're just going to run at the end of the hallway anyway. Some overrun, <laughs> some <laughs> overrun. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned a minute ago about uh, you know starting it out 
um, initially without the little elbows onto the tubes and everything else, the puppy runs over, gets paid, runs over, gets paid, runs over, gets paid, and bringing it through the process. Um, I personally have used this method on several dogs, and I didn't start them the way that you did with early, early, early. Um, we did it with a dog that I never intended to even sell, um, and she had tons of prey drive, um, and because of the way she was imprinted through these tubes, I mean, we were literally able to take her in two sessions on Dutch boxes to giving us a final alert on odor and hunting individually by herself. Um, and my partner talks about teaching shapes a lot, which is sort of what you're talking about in terms of like they, they learn to hunt through the individual little tubes and they learn to hunt the individual little boxes. And it's something that we, um, that I spend a lot of time on as a trainer is, you know, once the dogs are imprinted on odor, um, I see a lot of dogs that are like, oh, they're done, they're ready to go. And I'm like, yeah, well, they, can, they don't know where to look. And teaching that, how do you move from, like, say, the elbow portion or the tube portion or whatever, or the Dutch box portion or whatever else, to an active hunting behavior and teaching. Because I know with hunting retrievers, you're saying you're sending them out of the line and then you're using some of the object permanence. But how do you... Well, of course, when they learn to search tubes or Dutch boxes, Randy hair boxes or scent wheels, these discrete presentations, I think, are valuable for teaching rules. We can teach them about controls or uh, tar uh, distractions, and we teach them the, the odors that we're interested in. And then we can teach a final response there. And I believe those are valuable for that. But to actually learn to hunt, as you say, you have to transition from those discrete presentations. And I prefer to start my dog searching outside. Uh, if I put odor upwind of a path and I take my dog for a walk on the path, I don't cue him, we're just walking along. He hits odor and when he hits odor, he works over and I can pay him right away or I can demand for the final, whatever I want. Right. But we pay him, big, t big pay, and we go for a walk again. I don't cue him, I don't say a word, I just walk. And as we're walking along, he walks downwind of this odor, and he head up, snaps, works in. Uh, when we do this for a little bit, it's turning on in his brain that wonderful stuff that I've been finding in the tubes and on the wall. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's yes. everywhere, and it can be anywhere. So it's, it's turning on the, the hunt drive in the dog. He's earning reward through hunt drive and he's learning it for himself i'm not cueing him right if i take him and seek 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 i don't want an alert dog i have to show him check here check here check here and he alerts when i get him to the odor so i want him engaged and actively pursuing and thinking and looking all the time and the reason I start outside is because it's easier for me to predict the flow of the air currents. Gotcha. And once it turns him on, he's also learning to work odors to source, and that's easier for him to do. I can experiment and learn about his nose, too. I can place five hides in a line down to a cornfield and start 40, year, 40 yards downwind of that. Now I walk. If he doesn't hit it, I don't try to put him on the odor. I just make a turn upwind and come back. 
And if he doesn't hit it, I make a turn upwind and come back. And now I'm walk. We're just out for a walk. At some point, I'm going to get close enough for him to hit the odor cone, the scent cone. He's going to work at the source and get paid. And we'll hit the, other, the next one. Yeah, I learned something about him, how active he is, right. how hard he's looking. And very quickly, it turns on hunt drive. And I don't like to show my dog where it is. I want him to figure it out. I don't want him to have any idea that I know where it is. Right. Because most of my dogs are very efficient, and they want to sp- expend the less, the least amount of energy for maximum mm-hmm. reward. You know, it's interesting to you say something, stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that we do a lot of is teaching the dogs at an early age. And you mentioned something about this, and it's something that I don't see a lot of people talk about or do. And I learned the hard way, which is not always the best way, but at least I don't make the same mistake again. But um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but teaching the dog the difference between anomalous odor and actual target odor. So very early, you say you, you introduce a distracting odor. So in the situation where you send the dog out and they're hunting just out on a walk and whatever else. So then actual target odor becomes a focus and it's not just something they've never encountered. And they're like, well, I mean, it must be new, it's unique, it's novel, it's, it's, but it's an anomalous odor that they've never encountered. And they're actively hunting and they know the difference between target odor and they know the difference between anomalous odor, which is something that I, I learned the hard way. Um, my partner actually <laughs> helped me quite a bit, but you know, I mean, in, you touched on it a little bit, but it's um, it's extremely important in hearing you say how you move them off and move them outside. It makes sense because outside also you've got a non-sterile environment. You've got a working environment where you've got tons of anomalous odor that they may never come in contact with, but they've never been paid, they've never smelt it, so it just might as well not be, it might as well be just another distractor or just another background odor. I, again, I, I don't make any pretense of knowing the only way or the right way. Uh, But for me, I want to do imprint work on odor before the dog encounters it in a search. I don't want to, I imprint in search drive, but search drive in these discrete presentations. So the dog is working there and I do my imprint. But um, I don't want to take the dog into a search scenario and when he smells something different, he runs to investigate and I pay him. If that's his first experience with that, that happens the third time I introduce an odor, he's learning, when I smell something I haven't smelled before, run to it and I'm gonna get paid. I don't want him to do that. I want him to alert on the odors that we we assign importance to. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a minute ago, um, while we were taking a break for a second, about a, uh, a hawk teaching you or changing the way you train and handle dogs. What's that story about? I have, uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to, I wanted a monkey eagle. When I was a young boy, (laughs) you didn't have to have permits to buy birds of prey. And somewhere I found a magazine and I saw a monkey eagle for sale. And I must have been seven or nine years old. And I tried to talk my parents into getting me a monkey eagle and they didn't do it. Um, But uh, probably a good thing they didn't get me a monkey eagle. For the retrievers, I kept birds for for training hunting dogs. And my home in Maryland is along a ridgeline, and the falcons and hawks migrate along the ridgeline. They come south. And I had an immature Cooper's hawk male crash into my pen chasing ducks, and he got injured. And in trying to get him healed up, helped up uh, to a rehabilitator, 
I met a fellow who became my sponsor and sponsored me in falconry sport. And I trapped and trained red tail hawk, or trapped with him, and I trained a red tail hawk or two. About this time, I was running, I was training about the third hawk I had, maybe. I was training a group of young dogs, and I was disappointed with the young dogs I had. I didn't think they were as quality a group of dogs as I wanted. And I was, you know, it's so conundrum. How can I win if I don't have good dogs? And they don't send you good dogs unless you win. Mm. And, and uh, the real mystery is you just make the best you can with the dogs you have. And you will eventually get better dogs. <laughs> but uh, I was, I was uh, disappointed that some of my young retrievers in training really didn't like to train. And I was fussing about that a little bit. I trapped this hawk. And it was my third or fourth hawk, so I was pushing a little bit. And I trained this bird for two weeks. And I took her outside and turned her loose, and she flew up in a tree. And I called her, and she flew back to me. I threw her, and she flew up in a tree. I called her, and she came back to me. Now, that was the fastest I'd ever turned a bird loose. And I was walking back towards the house. I was pretty pleased with myself. I felt good, you know. Oh, I, two weeks, I to train a wild animal to come when I called her off leash and it started realizing that there's not a hawk born that cares anything about a human being and and yet I trained this animal in two weeks to come when I call her off leash and here I had well-bred Labrador retrievers that most of the, the, the worst Labrador has more interest in a person than the best hawk ever had. <laughs> and yet I had taught some of these young dogs not to like training. And I, I felt very high when excited when I called her back and she came and kind of pleased with myself. And the further I walked her back towards the house, the worse I felt when I thought about what I had done with my puppies. <laughs> and... Uh, so I started then evaluating and thinking and training. What was I doing different with this hawk? And uh, one, I was using a lot of positive reinforcement. I was using a lot of food. And I used to make fun of food trainers, and now I am one. Um, but it wasn't just using food. I was, at the time I was with my retrievers, we were, I would do the basic skills and kind of just do it mechanically. They just had to learn these lessons. And then when I was done teaching them the basic skills, we're going to go out and shoot birds, and their attitude will come back up. Well, you can't do that with a hawk. There's nothing mechanical you can do with a hawk that they care about. So you have to, you have to train a hawk in drive. You have to find out what the bird wants, food, sex, and surviving. And it's not easy to use sex or survival for training, but food, it's easy to use that for training. And, but then... I realized that it wasn't just that I was using food, but I was manipulating the training scenario so that the animal wanted to do what I wanted them to do. And then I was pairing, they were getting what they wanted out of it. And I realized that there were times I was using pressure on my labs just because you can. And so I fundamentally changed the way I what I trained. and I. I put more emphasis on 
on uh, reinforcement, positive reinforcement. I learned about marker training, learned a lot about marker training. Uh, and so I fundamentally changed the way I train dogs because of hawks. Yeah, early on, one of my mentors actually told me, you know, that dog trainers in general, you know, she also trains horses and she's done some bird stuff, but that they accept mistreatment. I mean, if you mistreat a chicken, it'll fly off, and you can't really mistreat a tiger or a whale. I mean, there's not really a way that you can force them to do much of anything. So it's interesting you say that. I mean, it's a... <laughs> I, I would. I won't correlate using pressure or force as mistreatment. I wouldn't well, say they're the same. Correct. No. no I, yeah. I, I wasn't yeah, saying you yeah. were, but but just for clarity, right. um, I do use force, and you can't really force a, a bird, but you can force an animal. And the uh, by force, I mean apply pressure to do a desired behavior, to encourage desired behavior. So often people talk about the four quadrants. There's two consequences or, or two results in those quadrants that increase behavior. Positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Positive and negative doesn't mean whether he likes it or not. Positive, I'm adding something. Negative, I'm taking something away. Reinforcement means it's increasing the frequency, intensity, or likelihood of a behavior. Two consequences that we need to control. Decrease behavior. Positive punishment and negative punishment. Again, Positive and negative doesn't mean he likes it. Positive, I'm adding something negative, I'm taking away. What I want to do in my training is I need a plan to cover all four bases with the animal. It's, I think it's silly to say, well, I only operate in the one quadrant. You know, I'm only gonna use positive reinforcement or I'm only gonna use compulsion. Real life isn't that way. I work because I love it, but I also work because I get paid. That's positive reinforcement. There's maybe some negative reinforcement too, because if I don't work, I, I, my family will sleep outdoors, you know? It's, right. and, and even think of working to avoid discomfort. You know, if I had my druthers, I'd go barefoot all year long. Yeah, yeah. But oh, the yeah. rocks, the rocks hurt my feet, so I wear shoes. <laughs> I'm not afraid to go outside. I don't hate my shoes, and I'm not afraid of rocks. I just wear shoes. I feel better and go where I want. So the same with when I train the dog. I want to use positive reinforcement with markers that tie the reward to the behavior. When we tie the reward to behavior, we can make the behavior rewarding. I use negative reinforcement to push for the desired behavior. Then finally, I have a way to correct him if he won't perform the desired behavior when I need it. Uh, Push-pull training and drive is what I call it. I, put, I want the dog to know I have powerful rewards for you available in training. I want the dog to know he can, by his own actions, make me produce rewards. I want the dog to know I have control of the rewards. I have control, but I want you to have them. Let me show you what you need to do to make me produce them. When I first got in uh, as a handler in 05, the, the trainers back then were all compulsion for obedience, right? So everything was compulsion. An hour-long session on the on the bike or on the uh, the OB field, as we called it, because that was a pretty big facility on the OB field, and five minutes of play at the end of it. You know, that was it. Crank, 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 crank. 
You're a good boy? All right, put them in the car. So what was happening is the dogs, when they come out to the OB field, were yawning, getting stressed, not liking it. Twelve Week 12 of a 15-week school, we're still locking the gates when we start to try off lead because they're going to run away. So when I took over as trainer, that's what I knew, and I started a little bit with that stuff, and I'm like... I don't want to be out here for an hour with, with doing this. And I had one of my guys went to a, um, a, a tactical canine school in Denver, or by, by a guy from Denver PD, sorry. And he, when they're on a break, he's talking to him about, I had some, ask him some questions. And so, and the guy said, listen, I do, sure, we, we do, we teach him leash corrections and stuff. But because he was showing him doing obedience, his dog, and the dog loved it. So he talked about doing more teaching them what you want them to do but doing more rewards for it 15 20 minutes at the most but tons of reps and tons of reward and uh so i changed completely the way i do it and two two and a half weeks we're off leash we're doing the off leash obedience they're not running away they're not they're not yawning on the field they're not stressed you know uh and and we i mean i'm talking about we did compulsion for everything obstacles every jumping little things you pick them up and drag them over now you, you throw a ball over it and they go over it it's amazing yeah it's it's it is a it is an amazing difference i i read a book someone told me that there was a description of force fetch in a book that was published in 1876 the author's name was b waters now i don't know if b is a man or a woman um but there's a description of force fetch, and it's basically the same steps we use today for as in force fetch. Now it's refined and it's a little polished, but it amazed me that they were and it wasn't presented as this is new, this is earth shattering. Let me tell you this: he just said this is how you force fetch. So it was a common knowledge then in 1876. But at one section in the book, he's talking about doing obedience training with these retrievers, and he. I'm going to try to quote him the best I can, and it's about the best description of training in drive I've ever heard. He says that much of what we ask of the dog in training is drudgery. Yet that animal will expend endless energy in pursuit of gain. His best work comes when we so seamlessly meld the two that he can't tell where one begins and the other ends. There, you, you hear a lot of people say that you cannot learn dog training in a book. But in this conversation, we've, we've talked about five or six different books that have shaped a lot of the way you have done some things. And reading and knowledge in any facet is going to help, period. Yes. yes. And, and if you're not willing to, to learn different things, you've probably changed the way you do things a lot throughout your career. Or tweaked. Or, oh, yes. Or yes, learned. Yes, yes. Like, here's an example. I had a... I had a guy got a hold of me and he said, uh, this, this agency doesn't want this dog because he won't track. So they sent me a video. Sure enough, he's not tracking. But he was just using a harness. So I, I said, give him to me. And I switched him under the leg and put some food down. The dog tracks like a champ. <laughs> but I have four or five different ways to try it, what works. But again, it, it used to be the way. Yeah. This is it. You, you hook this harness on them. They will understand that that's for tracking. You hook it up. You hook it to the end and they'll go. But then you watch some of them do it, and some of them are just sled dogging you to to Lima, Peru, you know, and, and off we go. So definitely, I try to tell everybody you got to learn a ton of different ways because dogs aren't robots. No. In a lit, in a litter of 
say like six puppies, they're all going to have some different little personalities and different things, and and you got to know how how to how to feed off of that. So sure. a lot of that's reading and talking to guys like you and talking to other guys and learning all kinds of different stuff. This is going to be one of the best parts I have in this podcast. Right, yeah, <laughs> learning all kinds of stuff. I have one real quick story I like to tell. It has nothing to do with dog training, but it is about the um, the uh, object permanence kind of you yes. were talking earlier. So when I was younger, I, li- I lived in Myrtle Beach for a little while, and <clears throat> I was DJing in a strip club, and I was making tons of money, like just piles of cash. So I'm going to be like Mike Tyson. I want a wild animal. And I lived in an apartment, and I go. I, I drove up to Raleigh and I bought a monkey. A three-year-old white-faced capuchin monkey, and so we have this monkey in this apartment, and uh, we had <laughs> we had two 14-foot Burmese pythons and a monkey, which was interesting in and of itself. So I would have people come over, and so the the monkey would do kind of the a little bit of the opposite, like I'm the baby and he's the he's the adult. He would get under the covers of, the, of my bed. And then think I couldn't see him, and he would try to creep up on me and bite me in the leg. <laughs> so I would move, and he'd creep through and reach around, and then come out with the covers, look around, see where I was at, put the covers back on, <laughs> and come. We, I do it for hours. <laughs> and then I had a friend of mine would come over, and I would stand against the door, and he would sit on my dresser, and the monkey would shut the light off, run up my shoulder, shut the light off, run over, and bite him on the neck or on the shoulder. Wow. <laughs> and so what we started doing was. He would shut the light off, and right when he got up to him, the, 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 my buddy would say something, I'd flip the light on, and the monkey would be in the, in the act of biting. And he'd freeze and look at me, get off, run over, turn the light. Yeah, I'm talking go. three or four hours we would do this. Um, Have a beer, just drinking. He would never, he would just back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> Don't get a monkey, though. They're horrible. <laughs> horrible. Because eventually he's going to eat you up. They have four hands. They're I mean, wild. They're, they're wild animals. Yeah, that, that monkey was born and raised at a guy's house. There, you can't get that out of them. There. Anyways, that was my little segue. Working Dog Radio is edited and co-produced by Dustin Wright at Bracket Designs. Be sure to hit him up at bracketdesigns.com for any branding or content-related work you have. We were graciously granted permission to use this rad music by Brother Deeg. Go buy him a beer at brotherdeeg, spelled D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com, spelled D-E-G-E, or hit him up on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or any other music streaming stores. Check the show notes for links to both of these creative geniuses.